0: Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law. Presented by the
1: law firm of Deeson, Garner, and Hansen, Hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hansen. Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner. I'm in studio here with Cody Beeson. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. How you doing? And we're missing Adam Hansen. He is over in Italy, so uh, safe travels to him. We want to talk this morning a little bit about uh, guardianships and conservatorships. I know that sounds exciting on its face. But we're going to give you a little bit more context to make it even more exciting. Here in our community of Yuma, we have a lot of retirees, and we love our retirees because they're just nice people in general, and uh, they also help our economy and enjoy our wonderful winters here. So we do a lot of work with people that travel down from north for estate planning purposes. And what we see and, and haven't seen an uptick lately in is a lot of fraud and what we would call elder abuse where individuals go in and they become friendly with a neighbor or however they meet them at the grocery store. And they first start helping out with chores around the house or grocery shopping and then become uh, a person that the, the elderly person has confidence in. And so, this happens more often. I don't know. I was going to say more often with with guys than than with ladies, but quite honestly, I don't know. It could go either way. More recently, I've seen three this week, where individuals have gone in and um, started helping out around the house, and then before you know it, they're dipping into the bank account and taking trips, taking vacations, buying high ticket items, even cars, and using a lot of those funds, and so they're really just taking advantage of these vulnerable elderly individuals, and it's it's really distressing. And so as a law firm that that participates in planning, we look for these red flags all the time, and we get really distressed when we hear these stories, and we want to, number one, try to prevent this from occurring, and so educating our clientele and the community at large how we can prevent this from occurring, and number two, address it when it does occur and, and stop the the abuse from continuing. And so one of the ways that you can do that is with a guardian and conservatorship. Now, that is an extreme level. A guardian and conservatorship is when the court determines that a person is incapacitated to the level that um, they can't care for their financial decisions any longer or make medical decisions any longer without the assistance of another person. And so the court deems them incapacitated, and many of their rights are terminated, their right to vote, their right to drive, their right to open up bank accounts and spend their own money, and all of those rights are switched over and given to the guardian. Now, the guardian doesn't get the right to vote for them, all right? But um, the guardian and conservator does get the right to determine where they live, gets to determine what bank accounts are open and how they use their funds and use it on their behalf. And so this is right at that level of losing your freedom altogether, being put in prison. I mean, you really lose a lot of freedoms when when you become deemed incapacitated.
0: But you don't know it. Like, that's the thing, right? You aren't aware that you're losing it and the people that are in charge of it now have their court
1: ordered, right? They have your best interests because the court has ordered that, right? Generally, yes. And I've seen the system work really well. And as much skepticism as I have for the government in general, the courts I have found, they work really efficiently and in the best interests for the public at large in these cases, especially the judges here. And now, not to any discredit for any judge that works outside of Yuma um, County, but I work with people specifically here in Yuma County, and the judges take a very personal interest in making sure that the individuals that uh, are brought before them as potentially incapacitated are not being taken advantage of further by appointing a guardian or a conservator that is that is not going to act in their best interest. And so let me just break it down a little bit as to what is a guardian and conservator and how they get appointed. So number one, a guardian is an individual that is appointed by the court to care for a person in making medical decisions and where they live. It's kind of like a healthcare power of attorney on steroids. Because not only do they have the um, privilege of receiving the information that a healthcare power of attorney has, but the decisions that they can make are binding, even if the person's there and objecting to those decisions. For example, if they needed, if the person needed to be admitted to um, a nursing home or an assisted living facility where they can have a controlled environment where they're not walking out the front door and getting lost, then the guardian can actually make that final de- de- determination. It's basically reverting the individual, the incapacitated individual, to a status of a minor and the guardian to the status of their parent. And so the parent has ultimate control right over what, the min- what happens with the minor. Now The, the minor can, can yell at them and can and say whatever they want, but ultimately it's the parent's decisions that are going to win out. That's what the guardian is in this case. It's the parent acting on, in the best interest of the incapacitated person. And so that's what a guardianship is. A conservatorship is for financial decisions. So if they have assets in excess of $10,000, then um, you're going to need a conservatorship for the decisions regarding those assets to be made. A house, if it's to be sold, bank accounts and financial transactions, cars, things like that. So with the guardianship and conservatorship, you have to file an annual report each year that shows how the money has been spent on behalf of the incapacitated person. So there's a checks and balances there where the court wants to keep an eye on what's going on with the money. They want to know, first of all, what were in the accounts beforehand. They also require a budget to be submitted to the court that says this is how we are going to use the incapacitated person's funds to – pay for the services that they need, outline the services that they need and the cost of those services, and show them how financially it can be feasible for you to exercise the plan of taking care of them. And uh, so all of this is it, good financial strategy, good thinking on the side of the court. When you're on the end of being the guardian or the conservator, it's really stressful, to say the least, to know that everything that you spend... On if this is your parent um, on on behalf of somebody you love who you're taking a lot of time out of your day to take care of is going to be scrutinized at the end of the day by the court and you need to keep receipts for it all to demonstrate that you haven't you know had any impropriety in using their funds
0: now could there be penalties if you lose receipts or you aren't able to keep track of that
1: yes yeah, sure you you could be discharged as um, the guardian and conservator. You could also be, you know, anybody could make a claim to adult protective services and they could investigate you for that and, and they could bring charges of fraud and theft. And especially, it's kind of, if you think about it, theft against a vulnerable adult is escalated to a higher level and there's greater penalties for it because these people are deemed vulnerable. And it's kind of like, you know, if you... Assaulted somebody, and then it was determined that the assault was um, motivated by racial hatred, right? It, it escalates right. it. It's the same thing with a vulnerable adult. If you take advantage of them, that's not only fraud and theft, but you're taking advantage of a vulnerable person. And so they heighten those penalties, which they should. So it's it's unnerving to think that every year you're going to get audited for the – Expenditures that you're doing that normally you would do just on an everyday basis without thinking about going to the grocery store. You know, they want another TV, fine, or if they just want um, some extra steaks and some some nice food, that money can go pretty quickly. And if you don't keep track of it, then at the end of the year, you can have some big expenditures and with no receipts, there's some big explanations to do. So that is what is put in place to protect these individuals. And I, I've seen three of them this week already, which is very distressing. And that's why it makes the level of getting on this radio show and this podcast, because it is a huge issue that we see out there today. What you can do to protect against it, short of going to the court and getting a guardianship and conservatorship as soon as your parents be, start to become forgetful, right, All right. Um, is... You can set up a trust. Now, I, we, we talk about trusts all the time, and um, they might start sounding like snake oil solutions. But think this is how a trust can protect an individual from being taken advantage of. Um, one of the easiest ways that this happens is, let's say this younger lady comes in, and it happens just as often with men or women, but we're just going to say in this scenario, it's a younger lady that comes into the scenario, and uh, she starts doing some chores around the house for dad, and uh, then she says, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I could pay your bills for you, if I could actually write the checks, because I'm going over all the accounts, and I'm explaining what you have due, and I don't have any authority to write the checks, so it'd be a lot easier for me to help you if I could write the checks to all the all the services that you're paying for, you know, APS and cable and phone bills. So um, they go down to the bank, and the banks they, they'll appoint an individual on the account. The default is joint on the account, so you may. Be wishing to appoint them as just a power of attorney to have check right and authority on the account, and not to use the account for their own personal interest. But if you ask to add somebody to the account, that language to a banker is going to be interpreted as add them as a joint owner on the account.
0: Now, does that have um, you know implications if you know there's taxes or look back periods for Medicaid or commingling of funds when you do that? All those
1: things, right? So. If if you add somebody to your account, then it's essentially you've made a gift of at least half of what's in the account, but giving them access to 100% of what's in the account. And so it can be looked at from Medicaid um, perspective that, that there's been a gift that was given, and that can create a penalty period for receiving government benefits. And especially if the individual takes money out of the account and... Uh, maybe you, you've developed a really good relationship or dad has developed a really good relationship with this person and is very reluctant, number one, to admit that they've been defrauded, and number two, to go against this person and, and, and bring criminal charges against them because they, they liked them. They, they, they maybe had a great personality, and maybe they did help out a little bit around the house, but that doesn't negate the fact that they stole from them. And so you're going to have to, if if they've taken a lot of money out of the account, you're going to have to actually, when you apply for Medicaid, pursue criminal charges against them to say, I did not give them this money. This isn't a gift that I made that's disqualifying me for these government benefits. This was money that was stolen from me. Well, if that's the claim that you're making, where's the police report? They need a police report. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because otherwise anybody would just be saying that. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, I suppose. So we have to take a break, but we're going to come back and talk more about this, how you can avoid either getting taken advantage of yourself or watch for the red flags of an individual that you love being taken advantage of. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death,
0: and the law right after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hansen, the law
1: firm that has been voted human's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We are talking about vulnerable adults, and you may be a vulnerable adult and not even know about it. And here are some indications. If you're lonely, if you could use some additional assistance around the house, if you've lost a wife or a husband of many years, and um, you've got that void in your heart and you're just looking for some companionship. Um, If you need assistance, paying your bills, all of those things open you wide open to an individual coming in and providing initially that assistance. And I'll tell you what, sometimes it could be even a well-meaning individual that. They themselves had no other intention up front than to help you out. But then when things start maturing and and the relationship develops a little bit, your money and their needs start to overlap. And they may be in financial distress. I've seen several situations where the individual is going to borrow money from the person that they were caring for and they'd already been granted authority to write checks on behalf of the person. They'd been given either a power of attorney, either an, an official document that names them as agent under power of attorney, or gone to the bank and been named on the account as an, an authorized signer on the account. And they've given themselves loans, and I say that in air quotes, because um, obviously a loan without permission is stealing, with, and, but they intend to pay it back. And I, I truly do believe that a, a lot of these perpetrators of these thefts begin with them justifying in their mind they're not really stealing, either they're borrowing or they're just paying themselves back for the services that, that they've rendered and maybe they've done it now for a year or longer and they, they see their services as very valuable. The problem with that is when they initiated the services, they were doing it as a Good Samaritan and now they're looking back and, and looking at it through the lens of they've got financial difficulties. This person has a lot of wealth or it doesn't have to be a ton of wealth, but at least they've got money in their bank account and we you can use it for your own self-serving interest, paying your car payments, paying if you're overdue on your mortgage and until it gets to the point where you're justifying every payment that you take out of their account. And so individuals, the perpetrators, I think, find themselves falling into this slippery slope of taking advantage of a vulnerable adults, as well as those who set out initially to identify victims and then pursue those victims. Have you have you seen this go on, Cody? Oh, yeah. And I mean, one time I, I saw
0: somebody that was a caretaker that required, you know, they, they needed a car. So they, they reached out to the person they're caring for and and asked them to uh, loan them the money for a car. And that. Well, at least they asked them up front. Yeah, but um, th- knowing what I know, like that's, that's elder abuse, right? You're not allowed to care for somebody in a official capacity and, and borrow money from them. Like that's
1: clearly a red flag for help. It's a red flag. And, and it's certainly something that you want to steer away from. That in and of itself isn't illegal, especially <laughs> if they ask to borrow it. What would, what would be great is if the person who is receiving the care had an attorney that they trusted and could come in and say, listen, I have a friend. They are a caretaker. And great, if if your caretaker is actually your friend, even better, right? Because you don't have some stranger providing a lot of necessary services, but you've got a friend providing these services. But um, let's have it drawn up. Let's have it legal, so we know exactly what the terms are, what the interest rate is, what the repayment rate is going to be, what the collateral is going to be that's going to secure the loan in case it's not paid back, and especially have the person that's borrowing the money understand that the law firm is going to be involved with this and and understand it exists, it's a debt, it's a legitimate debt. So I don't think that the loan in and of itself is bad, but it's certainly done under... um, circumstances that warrant a little bit of skepticism and a whole lot of oversight in order for it to be legitimate. Well, it makes it really messy if, you know, somebody dies before that
0: loan's repaid and now you have the family looking to be repaid. Absolutely.
1: And we, I see this commonly. In fact, we'll have individuals that will come in to set up a, a will or a trust and they're there And I I go in the lobby, and they're sitting with their caretaker. And I ask the client to come back, and and they request that their caretaker, who they've developed this good relationship of trust, to come back into the interview. I strongly discourage that. It's the client's option. If I feel the client is able to make their own decisions, then we'll do that. Um, I have done thousands of interviews, and so I'm very... Much on a heightened level of uh, skepticism and and scrutiny as to what whether or not this person's answers with regard to my questions as to what their assets are and who they want to leave them to are being influenced by the caregiver and so that's something that i'm I'm trained to look for and that I do look for i have I have hundreds of hours of of using that and seeing where I've m- misjudged individuals and so I do that but it's certainly a red flag do you have like a nonchalant way of like asking them to step back alone and just like have a conversation with them well initially I did try to do it nonchalantly but um now I'm so confident in my role as the attorney, and I'm, I'm totally embracing the idea that the attorney is supposed to be the guy that sets down the rules, that is not flexible, that makes sure that he, he identifies his client as the person that he's protecting. And so I just say it flat out, and, and I say it lightheartedly, but I'm serious as well. Hey, I need to talk with this client to make sure you know that you're not poking them under the desk and and trying to get some of their inheritance. And so I'm going to have you sit out in the lobby, and I'll tell you what, it's going to protect you as much as them because if they do want to leave you anything, any type of gift or a gesture for the service you provided, um, and you were in the consultation when that decision was made, it's going to look really bad when the will or the trust is read to the family after the fact. So you need to sit in the lobby, in fact, next time when the client comes in to actually sign the document that's going to legitimize and, and legalize their wishes, that you're not here at all, that you don't even drive them here, that somebody else altogether drives them here, or they drive themselves, because otherwise there are going to be those indicators of influence. And I say influence, but what we're looking out for here is, undo influence and right. there's a difference right all of us are influenced by everything i don't think there's a single decision i make throughout the day that's not influenced by how would my wife react to this <laughs> that's right there you go Undue influence is you're an individual that is susceptible you're vulnerable to being persuaded to do something against your will or, or against your better interest and um that per, there's a, a person willing to exercise that influence upon you. That's undue influence. That's over manipulation. And above. It's yes. That's a that's a great word for it. You're being manipulated, and so, and and you don't actually have to have direct presence to be manipulating somebody, right? You can just say, "Hey, I want to see your documents when you get home." And if it doesn't say this, then guess what? You know, everything that I've done for you, I'm going to. I'm going to leave you high and dry and either stop doing them for you, or I'm going to do something else that it's going to make your life miserable. So that's undue influence, of course, and that's harassment and threats. And, and we want to avoid all that. So those are things that we investigate pretty seriously as, as, as individuals come in and we see it all too often. And that's why I'm talking about it right now. And so a guardianship and a conservatorship, that is a way that if an individual finds themselves in that situation, then generally it's their family members that are coming to me saying, hey, mom has gotten this relationship and uh, she's given away a lot of money and she needs to have somebody look after her financial affairs or she's not taking care of herself and she needs somebody looking after her health care decisions. Needs to go to the doctor with her. Needs to be there, present with the doctor, and and she has dementia or Alzheimer's, so she's lost the capacity to sign the documents herself. Or whoever happens to be with her at the moment um, is the person that's going to be nominated as the agent under the power of attorney. See. In that situation, it, we, we need a guardianship too. She might be able to recognize her children and she may be able to recognize that she has bank accounts, but she's so vulnerable, she's so um, subject to undue influence that any person that has the latest contact with her is going to be the newly named power of attorney. She might have three or four out there because we get a new one every time somebody else rolls around.
0: So every time they go to a law firm or something like that, they could potentially...
1: Update that absolutely, and, and or you could do it online, right? You could you could jump online oh, yeah. and print out a power of attorney, and just go down to the bank and get it notarized, and then we've now got this updated power of attorney. And the banks they have their own power of attorney, so if the individual goes in with them, and um, the bank asks, "Do you want to have this person added as an, a power of attorney on your account?" Yes, okay.
0: Well, and, and now I'm thinking like, and obviously we're talking, you know, a durable power of attorney versus healthcare, but anytime you take them to the hospital, they're going to give them a, an iPad or, or, or something to sign, and that could just override it. Or update it,
1: maybe. It, absolutely. Yeah. It would override it generally, yes. And so those are all the situations where what we want to do is avoid that. So the only way that you can avoid that, really, is to develop a relationship with your clients to make them feel comfortable to come to you when when things are a little bit hazy and when they're confused or when they're feeling lonely and they need assistance because if they c- can trust you to look out for their best interest they've named individuals who have their best interest in mind their children their friend maybe another professional, an accountant, even an attorney, this law firm, we hold uh, fiduciary licenses as, um, we can be named as a fiduciary for an individual. And of course I've got a lot of liability if I'm going to do anything that was, that was, uh, scandalous that I would lose my license and and a whole bunch more. So, of course, I'm going to be very, very conscientious about making sure I account for every dime that is spent for uh, a client. But the thing is, if they don't have that relationship, if they don't have somebody they can turn to that might be able to identify that they are being manipulated, then um, they're really left out to this situation where – It's rampant, and and there's a lot of people out there that are willing to take advantage of them. So what we offer, and this brings us to what's going on this weekend, because um, on the 30th of November, we have a seminar. It's at the Yuma Main Library at 6 p.m., and we are doing the same seminar on Friday, December 1st, at 1 p.m., and those seminars are to educate Everybody, the public in general, about what type of planning do you need to get set up, and what a good relationship looks like with an attorney now you may think well I'm not wealthy enough to have an attorney to have somebody called as my uh, my attorney um, we don't hold any retainers at this firm, and there and others other attorneys do practice this way as well where you can establish a relationship with them and have them set up a will and a trust and a power of attorney and have those documents in place. The documents in and of themselves are necessary and good, but what's better is the attorney being able to receive a phone call and know that they've been involved with your planning and you've made decisions with their assistance and, uh, with with them serving as a sounding board as to okay, this is why this person is named, and so if something else comes along and you get involved in this new relationship or somebody's going to start uh, getting involved in your funds, then you can talk to your attorney without it being this very foreign, um, awkward situation. So you need to establish a relationship with your attorney. So this is what we do is we present ourselves out there as somebody that you might look at as a person you'd want to develop a relationship with when you come to those difficult times in life and also understand how the documents work that you need to have in place so your children or your, your best friend is going to be legally entitled and named as the person making decisions for you in the event of incapacity we got to take a break. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death,
0: and the law right after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law presented by Decent Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted human's best six years in a row.
1: Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, attorney with Decent Garner, and Hansen. I'm in studio here with Cody Beeson. So we're talking about guardianships and conservatorships and it's it's a very formal thing and oftentimes people have questions about when do you really take that leap and are there other steps and measures that you can take that are less formal and less drastic to help individuals um, make sure that they're not taken advantage of. And, and what are the signs that are out there? So yeah. what, what questions do you have, Cody? Well, I mean, you think like guardianship, you think of a child, you know, like
0: that the legal guardian that signs for things. But at some point, you're right. Like an adult loses that mental capacity. So, you know, you're over at... uh your parents house your dad's house for thanksgiving for christmas and you notice uh certain things red flags, you know And like why is he why did he add the why did he buy a cell phone for the caretaker? You know, like why why is he looking at new cars or what what's going on? Why is that stack of mail piling up? You know, what's There are little things that, that didn't add up. It's not your dad anymore. So at what point do you step in and Take the reins
1: yeah so that's actually great. We rely on the the people that have their best interests in mind out there to to see those red flags. Obviously, as the attorney, i'm stuck in my office i'm not out there visiting all the clients there We have honestly in the community right now about ten thousand families that we've done estate plans for, and so we rely on individuals that care for them to bring us news of how they're doing or the individuals themselves. And so if you're coming in from out of town and it's been a few months since you've seen your parents and you notice that dad has a stack of mail and and you look and you ask him about it and some of these bills are past due, then that is a great hint that um, maybe... He's, he's getting behind and um, his memory isn't what it, it used to be. And so you'd want to call up and make an appointment with the firm and, and ask, what are some steps that we can take? Now, what would be wonderful is if I could say, listen, he's set up an estate plan that um, the trust is created, his accounts are held in the name of the trust, his house is in the name of the trust. That's helped prevent anybody else from being named on the trust, so if somebody, a caretaker or a neighbor or anybody else that has recently gotten involved with him, went to the bank and tried to get added as a authorized user on the account or even added as joint on the account, it would not be allowed when it's in a trust. In a trust, they're going to require the trust be amended and an, another trustee be appointed. It could be a co-trustee with dad, and so... When they come in to do that, and I, and I get this frequently, caretaker or new friend in, you know, in his life is trying to get on the account and says the bank, you know, they, they were really honored. They wouldn't tell me that anything about the account. And, and he says that I should have authority to write the checks, but they wouldn't put me on the account. And they said it's because of your trust. And so then I, I, I start getting involved and I ask some deeper questions to see if there's undue influence going on, it's to see if this is really an individual that has their best interest in mind, and um, look at those who were nominated in the years prior when we developed that relationship and set up that estate plan and said, okay, at this point, you, you feel like you need somebody else on your account. Is that because you need help paying, like remember to pay your bills and um, help? maintaining your day-to-day finances? And if the answer is yes, then you've named your son, John, as an individual that you trust. And I know John's in Washington, but why don't we get John on the phone and talk to him? Because every time that we've discussed it in the past, John was somebody that you really had confidence in. And I might get some pushback, like, no, I've got Cindy right here, right now. She's She's come over to my house every day for the past three months. I met her, and uh, she's just really helped out, and she, she wants to be the person. And I say, well, certainly it's your choice, um, but I want to make sure um, that this is what you wanted and what you hired me to do, and that is make sure that you're you're cared for and everything goes according to plan that, that you instructed me to do. So I'm going to follow through with your instructions, and um, we're going to go through that. Now, there's a lot of different ways, based on the level of vulnerability that the individual has. But I usually don't get very much pushback from the clients because they know me. Right. That's, that's the whole purpose of it. They know that I'm looking out for their interests. that I don't charge them for each visit that I have. I'm not going to charge them to call up John and have the emails back and forth. I'm not actually making any more money on this. I'm just going to be the one that is ensuring the planning that they did when they were sharp as a tack is going to be implemented and i'm going to help remind them as why they made the decisions they did and get the people that they named had their best interest in mind at that time to help them remember why it might not be a good idea to add cindy or cheryl or whoever it is on on the account and so The trust, number one, is a first line of defense at the bank because it's very difficult to add somebody else on a trust account without modifying the trust. The bank is not going to allow that to happen. And so that's a good thing. Now, if all bankers you you had a very good relationship with and they knew you personally, then they might be able to look out for you anyway without it being in a trust. But this is just, it's a formality that the banks realize you can't do it unless a trust is updated. So it pushes you back to that attorney and you're going to have that opportunity to really review the, the option of adding somebody else on the account. So if I'm sitting now with John, who's visiting from Washington, his parents for Thanksgiving or, or Christmas or for whatever reason, and they're, they're in my office and we say, okay, it's time for us to implement your plan. You put this plan in place five years ago. You did a good job in doing it. Now let's implement it. John was going to become the trustee if you were unable, unwilling, or passed away. So right now, you're saying you're having some issues keeping up with the day-to-day finances. Let's add John as a co-trustee. If you're really not doing anything with your finances anymore, if you're really relying on somebody else to handle all those day-to-day affairs, then maybe John should be the only trustee on the account. So how do you feel about that? And we'll go and discuss those options, but if John gets named, at least as a co-trustee on the account, he's going to know what's going on in the account and see if there's some uh, shady expenditures going on, and he can make sure that the light bill is paid, the electric bill is paid, and so on and so forth. So that is one way that the trust and planning in advance helps, but it, there's no single paper or Document that, that deals with planning that's it's going to be a cure-all, it's the relationship. And that's what I really want to stress is you want to have a, a firm that you can go to, you can look at an attorney in the eye and say, this is my situation. I'm coming in for my biannual visit or annual visit or six-month visit depending on what's going on in your life at that time. And um, with our clients... We are so confident that the plan is not only a good idea, but that they will work as long as we're kept up to date. We do not charge our clients anything for follow-up consultation to discuss how the plan works, to implement their plan when it comes time to change it to the next successor trustee. Now, if we're going to modify some documents, obviously, we're we're going to charge some. And other attorneys could charge each visit and... That's not necessarily wrong, but it is. That is a, a stone that's going to prevent a, a, a stumbling stone that's going to prevent the client from coming in. They don't want to pay for that fee every time they come in. So we try to remove that.
0: I, I remember when you explained why you did that, and you're like, "I don't want people to try and rush everything in six minute increments. Like, yes. take your time,
1: explain it. Don't make a mistake." Yeah. Like, just be comfortable. Because I've done that. You know, I've I've billed at an hourly rate and we break those down into increments. You know, every six minutes is a tenth of an hour. And so we have people speed talking and missing important issues or I just don't hear them because it's being said so quickly. And so I don't charge for the time that I spend reviewing the plans that my clients have put in place. And I charge a flat fee up front for all of the plans that we do. that That's with a consultation complimentary so we can outline their plan and see if we understand what the client is wanting to achieve and can present them with a plan that is going to um, put their objectives down on paper and then we quote them the fee. If they walk away and say, I really don't like your plan, I don't like you, or I don't think you really understand me, that's fine, there's no fee. But if they agree to both the... the idea of the plan and the amount that they're going to pay down to the penny as to what it's going to cost them to get this plan incorporated, then we're going to go forward. And I think most of us we like that. We we can handle tough decisions. We can handle tough information if we're presented it transparently. We can handle the truth contrary to what most politicians believe. We want to know the truth. We don't want to be fed this Um, vision of what's going on through rose-colored lenses, right? We want to know really what is going on. And as an attorney, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it's going to cost and what the options are. When you become my client, then I'm going to look after and make sure that your plans that you've indicated are carried out unless you have capacity to change them. And you, you can always change them, but I want to make sure that you're not being taken advantage of. Let's say that mom and dad didn't do any planning and you come down for Thanksgiving or Christmas or any type of visit and uh, they seem a little off. They seem more forgetful than just your, your regular, uh, you know, you forgetting to take the trash out on the right day and they need some assistance, what do you do? What if it's so forgetful that they're forgetting the stove on? Oh, or they're walking outside naked or something. Yeah, forgot to put their pants on. Yeah. So those are some serious issues. And uh, of course... We want to get those addressed. That's the point where when you come in to make the documents, I'm going to do an assessment and determine whether or not they actually have legal capacity. Maybe they do. Maybe they recognize you and they recognize their accounts and they still can create legal documents. Maybe it's too late. So I'm going to assume now that it's too late. What do you do? Well, what if some days are better than others? Do you still have time? Maybe. Okay. And and it all depends. Like I'm going to have to do the evaluation because I I can't do the evaluation, put together the plan and have it signed all in one day. We have a lot of steps that we go through. We follow the same procedure every time. We've done it 10,000 times. The procedure works. If we leave out a step in the procedure, then we're opening ourselves up for error. And so it usually takes at least two weeks to get that plan signed from the time that I first interview them and, and understand what their wishes are to the final time they're, they're signing the document. So if they come in and they're sharp when, when I'm interviewing them, but then they come in to sign and we go over their um, selections and some capacity questions and they don't know those, it, the law is when they sign the document, Mm. It's, it's not if they've expressed those wishes to me before, just like the wishes that they've expressed to me before are not valid. They're not valid even if they are written down and signed by somebody who's incapacitated. So they have to have capacity at that time. So we do capacity checks along the way, and we, we have at least four points of contact before they sign the document, ensuring that they understand and have capacity to... Um, put those legal um, plans in place. So if they don't, then what happens? We can file a petition with the court. We open up a guardian and conservatorship. And so I'm just going to talk about it from a guardianship perspective just so, because it's a mouthful. Uh, With a guardian, who has the authority to apply to become a guardian? Well, it can be, first of all, any individual that the person has named in a prior document, like a power of attorney or a will, that they would like that person to become their guardian in case they became incapacitated. So that is the very first priority is you look at their planning prior and, and that person is the one that has number one priority. After that, it's um, the person's spouse. And so if, if, if you're a husband or a wife and your spouse is, is making erratic decisions or can't remember, can't care for themselves, you want to um, take them to the doctor and they're resisting, then you may want to get a guardianship for your spouse because just the power of attorney, number one, it could be too late. Number two, it's not enough in some cases. If you want to um, bring them to assisted living facility because they are wandering off at night and you need a facility that watches them 24 hours and you just can't then um, you need to have the authority to actually bring them there. And a power of attorney is not enough. So that is a guardianship. Um, If the spouse is unable or unwilling to, then an adult child of mom or dad could um, go in and and make that uh, petition to the court to get appointed. If none of those are available. It could be a parent, but of course, most of our clients are elderly and they're, they've survived their parents. So the parents aren't available. Um, it could be a relative of a person that has um, lived with them for more than six months. And then we we go down the list more remotely from there. It can be a person who is a licensed fiduciary. And that's why this firm holds fiduciary licenses. Now I'll tell you what we do just to finish up here. I don't like to serve as a, as somebody that gets involved in my client's day-to-day finances every day. Okay. I want to see the overall picture. I want to see who is going to take care of them, and I want to make sure that those individuals have the power that they need to take care of mom's affairs or dad's affairs or whoever it may be. And so what we can do is we can petition the court that uh, a trust be set up and all the assets be placed in a trust. And the court can find right then and there that son is got mom's best interest in mind, and son is capable and willing to act as the guardian. And then we can transfer, do a one-time transfer of all the assets through the court's authority into the trust. Now, the trust is an entity in and of itself and doesn't have to go through the court accounting every year. Of course, we want to be careful when we do that to make sure that this is a situation that we have confidence in, nobody's going to be taken advantage of. But... We want to avoid court intervention. Most families do, as long as we can um, have confidence that that is going to be in the best interest of our client. And so we can set up a trust through the court's assistance. And that's at the point that they become incapacitated or at least have limited capacity. And now son or daughter can be the trustee of the trust. And as a trustee, you don't own any of the assets. You're not authorized to use those assets for your benefit. You're required under law to use those assets for the benefit of mom or dad. So it has the same legal effect. It just has less oversight. That's why it's called a trust. You're being trusted to do what's best for the person that you've been nominated to assist. So that is how we can help out people avoid these situations of fraud that are so wrought right now in our society and we're seeing so frequently. Hopefully you've got a little something out of this. If you want to learn more. Go to our seminar. We have one this Thursday at 6 p.m. at the Yuma Main Library. Call us at 783-4575, or you can RSVP for the one on Friday, December 1st, and that is at 1 p.m. at the Foothills Library. You can also go online and watch an online seminar. It's not as good as being in person and asking questions, but it's the next best thing. So that's at yuma.law. This is life, death, and the law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm
0: of Deason, Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575
1: or visit yumaestateplanning.com.